everyone, welcome to episode 116 of Poetry Says. Hope things are okay in your world, wherever you're listening from. This is a chat between myself and Daniel Swain, who published the chapbook You Deserve Every Happiness But I Deserve More. What a great title. As part of the Slow Loris series that my chapbook Blanks was also a part of. And it was so fun to talk to Daniel. He's up in Wollongong at the moment, visiting from uh, where he's usually based in the US, working at Yale. I say visiting. It wasn't really a voluntary visit, let's be honest. And we start off by talking about all the time we're spending on our own and the toll that that's taking, at least on me. And then we get into a little discussion, which I found really fascinating, about how... The current crisis is causing people to start making demands of institutions like Yale and the oppressive nature of working at a higher education institution, which is a chat that I tend to have more offline than on the podcast, on the record. So I was really appreciative that Daniel was willing to unpack that a little bit for us. We then talk about his poetry work, of course. We talk about the launch that we had up in Newcastle and the great responses that his poems got, even though Daniel wasn't able to be there, we just heard a recording of him reading and everybody loved it so much. And the same thing happened when a couple of us read out his work in Melbourne. We get into the themes that he explores in the chapbook, straight men, uh, queer irony, self-exposure, therapy, And towards the end, we dig in a little bit to the form of comedy, the question of name dropping in poems, and finish off with a little chat about Frank O'Hara and also a number of the other poets that Daniel's reading at the moment. Daniel says at the end that this chat was a normalizing experience for him, and I definitely felt the same. And I hope that listening to it is the same kind of experience for you. Thanks for listening. I'm well, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, really good. It's so good to hear your voice. Yeah. How, yeah I mean, are you all set up for uh, for, for isolation? Oh, uh, yeah. No, I'm super set. Uh, this is, well, I go to say this is my natural state. It's definitely my natural state plus, um, oh, yeah, plus. <laughs> it's more, I reached a point at about 8 p.m. last night where I was like, no, this sucks now. I don't like this anymore. Right. It's like um, in some ways I think people that are sort of introverted, they've got a toolkit, you know, but um, this is just introversion taken to its logical extreme. uh, (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I read some stupid tweet that was like, a lot of people who thought they were introverts are finding out they weren't actually introverts anymore. But like, I don't know, it's different, right? Because being an introvert is like, you you go you get time to recharge on your own doesn't mean you never want to see anyone right yeah. right i think it's like you realize that if all you're doing is the recharging then uh <laughs> yeah i'm i'm right? char- yeah. i'm fully my battery is full i want to go and do something, get something. expand that energy yeah. Uh, yeah yeah but thank you so much for doing this in what i'm sure is a busy and weird time 
No, no, thank you, thank you. It's it's um it's really lovely to talk about poetry and and um just life in general during a time when you know yeah we are kind of just not venturing out or um yeah yeah. What does your what does your day to day look like at the moment? Well, I came back from the US because I decided to fly out um, while Qantas was still flying planes, and then I just spent um, two weeks in quarantine. And I've now um, returned home to my family. So there's lots of kind of family care responsibilities. Um, and alongside that, I'm still trying to finish semester. So I'm Skyping into classes in the US um, in the early hours of the morning. So I'm trying to do my readings for that as well and for my papers that are still due. Um, and And in between times, I'm trying to fit in kind of reading or podcasts or culture or um, the sort of things that help distract us or, or relax us. Yeah, right. And how are you going with that? Because I'm finding I can probably do like 15 minutes max on any one activity before my brain starts up again right. and I'm distracted as hell. I'm not – because podcasts would be a good example. I'm not actually really a podcast person, but I find that um, that's – it's been sort of like a weird – um, replacement for having conversation around you. It's just kind of voices in your ear. Um, and, uh, it's also just something you can do while you're doing something else. Um, so I really enjoyed that and, you know, kind of poetry podcasts, fiction podcasts, um, working those into circulation with my usual kind of newsy ones has been a real pleasure. Um, just a different way of, of finding time to read when often at the end of the day, I'm just not really feeling in the mood to read outside of the kind of um, course readings on my syllabus. So that can't, I imagine, continue for the months and months we're going to be in some sort of isolation. Mm. Which, um, which poetry podcast are you listening to? I'm always up for more recommendations. Well, your own, of course. Oh, thanks. Uh, your um, your uh, episode with Michael Farrell uh, recently. Um, oh, that was such a good day. God damn it. That feels like years ago now. And just you can hear in the background, just like the outdoors, uh-huh. um, yeah. which was cruel. It was a good time. Uh, yeah, but I really like. Um, I, I've been going back through. Um, it's it's kind of more of an, a fiction podcast, but uh, bookworm. But they've got a lot of poets on there, and sort of going through their archive and listening to the poetry episodes. Um, the New Yorker Poetry Podcast is just a classic. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I've never really gotten into them before. So it's for me, it's kind of. I've got this ability to kind of go back through years and years of interviews and readings um, with just kind of these amazing poets. So that's been yeah. a real pleasure. Yeah, the New Yorker one's great because they're just sort of bite-sized as well. So you get this little window into a poet's world and their passions and then you're sort of on to the next one. Right, and I also love that uh, the structure of it, that they kind of read their own poem and then another poem that has been published in the New Yorker before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a very good one. So whereabouts are you now? Are you in Sydney, Melbourne? I'm in, I'm in Wollongong, Wollongong. Uh, which is where I, I uh, was, where I grew up, and where my, where my parents still live. Um, and I decided that, um, you know, I thought about maybe uh, renting somewhere in Sydney just for the, a few months, but I think it's nice to be locked down with people. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, as I said, it's kind of, it's sort of nice to be, and I feel very fortunate to be in the middle of, um, semester because it's just this kind of there's a lot of um, things to occupy myself with 
right? I know a lot of other friends that have just had either they've been stood down or laid off or if they are working from home, it's just kind of there's not enough to kind of stimulate them. Um, so, yeah, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I've got friends who've kind of gone from very busy lives to nothing. Mm. Um, weirdly, in my own freelance work, things have picked up a little bit, which I feel sort of guilty about. Like I've got weird survivor's guilt around that. Um, and also a lot of gratitude. Right, so, right. Yeah. Um, so you are you're doing a PhD at Yale? Are you still doing that? Yes. Yeah. Right. And then right. as part of that you do like lectures and, and tutorials and stuff? Yeah. So for the first two years it's just a course work masters. Um, so I'm just still in the first year. Uh, so we're just taking classes um, and then after those two years, we'll, we move on to a dissertation. Um, so much more like a traditional kind of Australian PhD and we'll also do teaching of tutorials. Right. Um, yeah. And how, how forgiving are they in the U S of, um, I know people in Australia who do PhDs, it, it tends to be like five years would be a quick one. How forgiving are they of like extended timelines over in the U S Oh, it varies. And I think that right now a lot of the institutional rules are being rewritten mm. because they've, obviously the whole higher education sector has never faced something like this. Yeah, right. And so I think that's really fascinating. Every day in my inbox I get petitions from, uh, you know, stu student-organized petitions, either undergrads or graduates in the department or across the university asking and making new demands, um, and, and I, which is great. And very exciting as a kind of way of rethinking um, how power operates in the university at a difficult moment. I think that a lot of people are being really energized about making basic demands on an institution like Yale to provide them with security and provide them with certainty. Um, that um, I'm trying to look at the positives of a really horrible moment. Um, it'd be kind of great to sustain that culture um, when there isn't a kind of pressing crisis. Um, but, but I think that, uh, one of the big differences with, between America and Australia is just the presence of a welfare state here and, and a, a very problematic one in Australia, but, um, still so much stronger than in the United States. So I'm really worried about colleagues in graduate school who are going to lose their funding and then don't have healthcare, don't mm. have the ability to access unemployment benefits um, in their, uh, for, you know, 90 days, um, in their, the state which, in which they're resident. So it's, it's really scary over there. I think in, in ways that, um, that uh, as, as, as awful as things like Centrelink are, I think Australia is marginally better in important ways. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of like, yeah, even a, even a slightly broken safety net is better than none or almost none what it sounds like right but yeah i'm super interested in what you're saying I, I do want to get into your poems and we'll definitely do that soon but i really am interested to hear about what it's like to interact with an institution like yale because i have friends who work in higher education and they express a little bit of what you touched on there well a lot actually a lot of that that frustration at the institution and it's sort of oppressive like truly oppressive nature the demands that it makes on their time and the way that it steals time from the work that they went to that institution to do and the stuff that they're actually passionate about 
and I'm yeah I'm just interested in like your thoughts on I'm guessing you've been at uh, Australian unis as well like what you see is the the differences there and like what it's like to kind of I mean that groundswell of people challenging Yale as an institution that sounds really great yeah I think I think that's something that's really interesting you know I mean um according to American labor law graduate student workers aren't workers we don't have the right to unionize uh we don't have the right to be in a collectively bargained agreement so it can be very curious in an institution like Yale that has so much money I mean it has a a 30 billion dollar endowment and it can actually feel relative to other parts of the higher education sector, like you, you're, you're treated relatively well, but at the same time, um, in the context of all that wealth, right, all, that, all that accumulated capital, right, um, it, it, there's still a kind of needless cruelty in the system. So one pointed illustration to me was um, a graduate student in, um, at Yale who had to go on medical leave and the university granted that medical leave, but um, the moment you go on medical leave, you lose your healthcare rights. That doesn't make any sense. Right. That's <laughs> sort of. So there's lots of things I think are um, similar or uh, continuous with the way that higher education bureaucracies in, run in Australia. And there's very similar kind of atmospheres of sort of privilege at Yale, as you would see at a lot of group of eight universities in Australia. So I don't think there are, there are those market differences, but there's just kind of, it's almost like the, the absurdities, the institutional absurdities on those sort of questions get exaggerated. Um, yeah. And, and I think there is something interesting about um, these moments of crisis, these extraordinary moments that, that make us rethink the ordinary. And um, maybe this is naive, but I'm, I'm hopeful, not obviously just in higher education, a whole set of institutions that we're really thinking about what, what we're owed. And, you know, even just the ways in which I know this is happening across different kinds of institutions, all of a sudden kinds of provisions of money are being discovered to support workers that in regular times are denied to them. Well, I've been fascinated by that too. I'm like, you had this money the whole time? Interesting. Right. Interesting. <laughs> um, so I, I, find that, I find that fascinating and I'm, I'm interested in the, the kind of movement to, to unionise graduate student workers in the United States because here in Australia it's exactly the same situation of the casualization of the higher education system, pushing more and more workers onto... Um, temporary positions, precarious positions. And I think that kind of um, working collectively is the only way that we can fight that. And in terms of what's going to come next, I know that a lot of universities around the world, because they've lost revenue, are going to start imposing conditions of austerity. And we know that the first places that in a university where those austerity conditions are imposed are the humanities. And we also know that the very first places within the humanities is often creative arts, the literary arts. That's right. You know, that's a kind of concern. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like there's a sense of, well, we're all about to lose security anyway, so why not fight? Like I wonder about how much the fear of losing what you have, say, six, 12 months ago in a, in a, a casual position at a university would stop you from speaking up. I I'm thinking a little bit about um, this really great YouTube video I saw of um, 
Sarah Ahmed talking about her work on complaint Mm. and she kind of goes through what it is to make a complaint at a higher educational institution and how at every turn you are discouraged, threatened, blocked and, you know, it takes quite a bit to actually stand up and say, no, 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 I, I need this, I want this. Yeah, maybe now that sense of we're going to threaten you with losing your job is is less scary because it's like, well, yeah, it's going to go anyway, if you know what I mean. And I, I, that Sarah Ahmed's writings on complaint in the university, that's, yeah, that's so true. I, I should go, go back to those because they're, they're so relevant, you know, I think in this moment. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think there's something, again, slightly different in terms of Australia and the United States is just the kind of whether you're willing to do something like sign a petition, Right. So these, as I said, these petitions that are circling around kind of graduate students or undergraduate students, my sense is amongst Australian graduate students, they would just sign the petition. Whereas in America, there's just something about all of the kind of things that you were referring to there, like Ahmed's arguments are complaint, they're just so much more live there. They're really worried about signing their name to something. They don't have a kind of uh, history of union organizing. Um, they don't have labor rights. <laughs> so everything's kind of everyone just feels more vulnerable in that sense. And I mean, I, I say this in the context of feeling really fortunate to be at the institution, but they almost, it's that sense of gratitude that they exploit, right? Or as part of the tools through which they um, discourage complaint. Yeah. Or, or people making demands. Um, yeah, I've yeah. felt that even in workplaces, actually, now that you put it that way. you, I've been in jobs where I've just felt so grateful to be working for a certain organization because I really believe in what they did. And after a while, I sort of noticed that there was this narrative around like, we're so lucky to do this work. Um, so, you know, if we have to put in a bit of overtime, that's just the way it is. And yeah, then you realize that you're doing a 70 hour week for 40 hours pay <laughs> and you're like, Oh, but I'm so lucky. So yeah, it's a weird thing. I I want to pivot on to your work as a poet now mm-hmm. because we could talk about the issues with higher education for far too long and that would distract us from your amazing work. So when we um, had our Slow Loris launch up in Newcastle, we got to play this YouTube video that you'd made of you introducing and reading your work to the people who were there and I so wish that we could have somehow Skyped you in so that you could hear the laughter. You got some huge laughs. <laughs> Just, oh, that's great. You have to know, like, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was jealous. I was like, God, this guy's killing and he's not even here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm wondering if I could get you to maybe read a poem so um, listeners can get an idea of the kind of work that you do. Sure, sure. I might read one um, called Routines. Routines. About once a day I think of the wetness of Ellen's eyes as Obama places the presidential medal of freedom around her neck. The other day on Ellen, the entertainment guests were hip-hop dancers who busk on the subway. After their routine, she calls out to her assistant, Andy, Andy, bring in the hat, a giant baseball cap into which she hurls bricks of money. I think we need more, Andy. Another 10,000. The men dance on furniture, Tom Cruise style, like each 10K is a presidential medal of freedom. Another 10,000, Andy. She stops, even though the hat isn't a quarter full. 
She wants to take a minute to thank the sponsor, but it only takes a few seconds. Every time a middle-class artist tells me they're anti-capitalist, I ask them what an interest rate is. They've got an MFA in not reading the news. They'll put a, a hoodie in their latest installation, as if to say, oh, exactly. As if to say, come on, boys, art, let's do this. As if to say, an interest rate is the cost of borrowing a hoodie from an ex-boyfriend. As if to say, an interest rate is letting your New York Times subscription elapse because they tweet the headlines for free. Whenever I drink an Aperol Spritz, I think of that summer everyone drank Aperol Spritzes while talking about how everyone was drinking Aperol Spritzes. <laughs> the summer before, people pretended to prefer orange wine to a nice dry Riesling. That's when I knew Brexit would happen. <laughs> people just want to belong to smaller and smaller unities. No one is an island, but sometimes you can hold one in your hand, foam against the rocks, oily sunset, Italian herb garden, over the breeze. Every few months, my mother texts, have you heard of Ruby Kaur? And I reply, thank you for taking an interest in my career. About once a year, a friend asks, what's the difference between an ironic jerk and a jerk? I think it's a stupid question. The difference is irony. On Rachmaninoff's birthday, I read Frank O'Hara's poem on Rachmaninoff's birthday. Frank is my favorite sit-down comic. Every fortnight, my therapist offers the same advice. You've already used your 10 free appointments. I view this as a Lacanian entanglement. No, I want to say, you have used my 10 free appointments. I'm in this S&M relationship where I let this dom top text me inanities every night. Your camera really captures the light. The only thing it captures is light, Gerard. I'm in a group thread with straight men or mostly straight men. It's like those TV documentaries where they place an arachnophobe next to tarantulas in a bell jar. I've been chatting with them every day for five years. Now when someone says something agreeable, I say woof, in that straight man way, woof. I've convinced them all sport is dance. Is humor an attempt to avoid the basic fact of your desire? My mental health plan is correcting the grammar in my therapist's thought of the week emails. See, that's the difference, I explained to him, between white artists and white poets. White poets read the news, or they write poems about white artists as if to say, oh, exactly. As if to say, come on, Greg, we can make this work. As if to say, at least return my hoodie. As if to say, I'll let you borrow my password for the times. Once a week, the man I'm sleeping with appears to me in a dream to say, every poem has its own ontology. What does that mean? I ask the dark. For instance, he explains, in this poem, there is a conceivable future. When I wake, I turn to him and say, you deserve every happiness, but I deserve more. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I couldn't quite hold it together for the whole poem there. <laughs> There's moments where I feel very personally attacked. Um, fuck, it's so funny. I love how in so many of the poems in this book, so this is you're reading from the Slow Loris chapbook, you deserve mm. every happiness, but I deserve more, which is very beautifully put together. And yeah, as I said, just very, very hilarious. Um, there's so many poems in this book where straight men are the subject of ridicule, uh, which I, I deeply appreciate. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think I was using this uh, these collection of poems in some ways to um, – think about why I find straight men funny um, or, or I mean, maybe take a sort of um, 
uh, traumatic relationship to them from my childhood and instead think about um, now that, that, that I've grown up and I have a greater security in who I am and, and also the straight men in my life have a greater security in who they are, how can comedy or irony or pathos be a way of understanding the situation that straight men are in? And I think that's a mode that a lot of, whether it's comedians or novelists or poets, a lot of kind of straight men are, are sort of using to explore their own heterosexual maleness. But I thought that um, what if what if that was kind of included uh, within a tradition that I that I think I, you know, I, I hope to operate in or, or a tradition of poets that inspire me of kind of queer irony and and sort of yeah focusing a lot on that that idea of 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 humour um, as a way of almost diffusing the 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 masculine mystique or the the kind of straight male macho persona yeah yeah it's like there's an acknowledgement throughout the book that a straight man can be like a tarantula in a jar i think there's oh i should have i should have written it down but there is something about how straight men might kill you or like right what's the bit i'm thinking of um, I might be able to find it. I think it's uh, maybe an against argument or... Yes, yeah. Uh, sex with straight men is very easy. It just involves contact and suppressing the fear they might kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when um, I think somebody read that out at the Melbourne launch as well and, yeah, there's a, there's a moment in the room when that line is said of like you want to laugh but you also there's like a sharp intake of breath or like a... You know, it's it's a gut punch that line because it's an acknowledgement that there's fear as well as as humor, right? And I think I think it can, I mean that line in some ways is comes from a quote that's often attributed to Margaret Atwood that um, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them, which again is is a kind of has this um, it's one of those moments where it's it's a it's, it's a very tight comic observation but so dark at yeah. the same time. Um, and so that kind of, I was sort of reworking that into a moment about reflecting on a pattern of behavior in my kind of earlier in my twenties of sleeping with men that identified as straight and, and what kinds of danger I was attracted to there and what kinds of rejection I was trying to contain, what kinds of, um, tarantulas I was trying to put into bell jars. And I think that was what I was also trying to capture in those lines in against argument. Do you want to read that piece as well? Sure, sure. This is um this is the last poem that I wrote um, for the chapbook, and it, it's kind of an odd thing in that the title is against argument, but it, it was the place in which I was, I suppose, assembling the argument. Right, it's the sort of piece that occurs to you when you're trying to take a collection of poems and um, put them into a chapbook form. Um, so I'll read that now. Against argument, I've planned the entire history of the reception of this poem including that it won't have a history. Even gestures of inarticulacy are rehearsed. Even the way you think reflexivity doesn't move me. I planned that. Poems anticipate anticipation. A straight man at a party told me that identity is purely a mental event. And I remember thinking, that's so specifically wrong. We were talking about Hannah Gadsby's next Netflix special, which he felt was more like a lecture. Do you know what else is like a lecture? being friends with straight men. A straight man I met at a club invited me to his first year architecture show, where he presented a basalt ziggurat dedicated to his ex-girlfriend. That night I learned, sleeping with straight men is easy. You just have to make eye contact. 
I once passed a straight artist who said, I don't believe in form, only content. So it's appropriate he is here in his poem with us now. Artworks detach themselves from the empirical world. Adorno is a straight boy I wouldn't fuck with. Bebop jazz was poetry after Auschwitz. Is this an essay? Poets are against argument. Anti-didactic, counter-pedagogic, go ahead and say it. Poets won't. A remembered performance. A recovering alcoholic takes the stage and pours herself out one bottle of wine after another as people in the audience practice watching. A crowd exits a theatre after witnessing something and say, that's so powerful, talking past the art of trauma. In this poem, I want you to feel powerless. In queer poetry, the impossibility of connection is an intentional strategy with a long history. One day in a playground, a trapezoid graze, asphalt kiss brought to the lips and the taste of an ending and just the hint of the beginning of taste. Since that day, I've planned out the entire history of my emotions and their reception. Poets try to be illegible, but I'm helplessly legible. Via legibility, I avoid the insult of your assistance. If this is a poem, then where's the imagery? If you're not thinking that, then picture yourself thinking it. I'm dating a poet who's rewriting the prelude in the second person, which we both agree is a failed exercise. Last night, he kissed my cheek and said, irony is a system that protects us from the past. People say writing about trauma is hard, but then why does it constitute 25% of book publishing? I've decided to conscript you into art by making form inconspicuous. In effect, you're literary. I suppose what I'm saying is that when you perform for me, I'm exactly as real as you. Dawn in a stranger's bedroom. I don't have a sexual orientation per se. I just like being held in a particular way. Outside in Redfern Park, everyone takes their morality for a walk. The ought bourgeoisie. Later at a bus stop, I mute every star sign on Twitter. Some people can't afford to live by the park anymore, but as a consolation, poets write poems about them. Only some of us domicile in the real. When people say, don't think of an elephant, I think of the cover of George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Since Lakoff first argued that politics is mostly a mental event, political rhetoric has become an industrial outgrowth. People say Hillary Clinton was inauthentic, but she anticipated that. She's corporate in the other sense of the world. We're with her. Authentically inauthentic, John Ashbury should have been her communication strategist. After a conference paper, I'm asked if I'm reducing Frank O'Hara to a gay poet, like balsamic over low heat. I want to believe in a rivalrous world. Poets like to name drop, name drop theorists like there's a Lukács Prize. But I just want to know if I can raise reification without making it a thing. In bed, a straight man says, I'm going to destroy you, faggot. Sex with straight men is very easy. It just involves eye contact and suppressing the fear they might kill you. I want to stop him and explain, see, identity is not merely a mental event, but it was a different straight man, so it wouldn't make sense. In Chinatown, a sign reads, I want to cut your hair like it was your idea. Your mind is exactly at this line. At a dinner party, a woman reads out her tweet, lakes are queer. Go ahead, I think. Work your way up into a tedium. I open the window to the nauseous mist of humiliation that hovers over poetry and a trapezoid graze. Sure. I think I'm a gay man, but I'm also so much less than that. Thank you. Yeah, again, when that when we read that out in Melbourne, you got a whole lot of laughs, especially for um, like balsamic over a low heat. 
yeah, I so wish I could have been there. Oh man, I wish I would like yeah again. I wish we could have we could have skyped you in. I want to ask you because that poem raises this idea I think a little bit about reception and about response to your work. So, as we just said, you you missed hearing the laughs, and this is the same question that I asked Michael Farrell when I chatted to him a couple of weeks back. Does it matter to you if people get the jokes? I mean, I would say it does um, in that I, I don't um, – it doesn't matter to me so much if people have a kind of laugh-out-loud reaction, right? I think that's one of the things that separates comedy in poetry from comedy as performance, as, a, as the kind of live art of comedy. Um, and, you know, I borrow a lot from a lot of, of comics, and, um, and Hannah Gadsby is one of them, right, that's named in the, in the poem. But I think one thing that's different is I'm looking at uh, lots of more interior effects of humour. I think it's great the reaction you were referring to before, people thinking they should laugh but um, not feeling able to or kind of questioning why a joke at a certain point in the poem makes them laugh but later doesn't. I mean, I suppose you know, live comics also use a lot of these similar devices. Um, maybe I'm exaggerating the difference between the two forms. But um, I'm very, I am very kind of interested in responses. And I think you can maybe hear in this poem that I'm parodying or working through a desire to control response that I think a lot of emerging poets feel. Right. And and I think that I would love to get to the kind of in so many senses, I would love to get to the kind of Michael Farrell stage of life um, of, of being able to let go of, of, of a desire to control the effect your language has. And I do see that as, as part of the challenge of developing as a poet. Yeah. Well, the, another line that stands out, another phrase that stands out from that poem that you mentioned is being helplessly legible. And I think that um, that openness, I think, I think you have that openness, yet you're also aware that you still care about how people are going to respond to what they read, what they experience in your work. Would that be a fair way to put it? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think um, I've always been struck by, you know, listening to these recent podcasts of interviews of poets and they say things, you know, someone will put that to them that their work has a lot of self-exposure and they'll just say, oh, I, I hadn't noticed that. Or, or and, and you listen and you think, how absurd, how could you not notice how much you were giving away in your poetry? But um, since the chatbook came out and since it's been read both by people that um, are close friends or people that um, I, I don't know so well, but I get this kind of same response of, wow, you reveal so much. And I've had um, the same impulsive response of so many of those um, more established poets that I've listened to in those interviews of thinking, really, do you think I reveal that much? But then uh, so much of this work emerged from a period in my life where um, I kind of discovered the, the magic of therapy. And therapy is, a, is a, as many people have commented, it's, it's, a, it's a language art. It's, it's something that makes you think about the power of work, uh, words to, um, to structure the self, to unlock parts of the self, and to expose and reveal the self. And, and one of the ethics that it works on is the ethic of um, not totally unrestrained legibility, but that's largely the conditions under which the therapized self is encouraged to express itself as, as legibly as possible. A concern I have about both American poetry and Australian poetry is a, a sort of um, ongoing separation between a lyric mode that is quite legible and an, an experimental or conceptual mode of poetry, which seeks illegibility. And I'm kind of interested in how those two traditions sit alongside each other or, or what, what divides them. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, me too. That's our, that's the, the tension that 
constantly fascinates me. And I love work that seems to play in the space between those two modes, as I, I think yours does. Did you feel scared before this book came out? I know that the night before our launch in Newcastle, I uh, took quite a bit of uh, sleep medication because I was terrified. And this was this was the privilege of it falling at a time when I couldn't get sleep. <laughs> you got I, out of it. The fact that I could film it, right, and send it to that launch in Newcastle, and then I loved it even more when the, there was a subsequent event in Melbourne, and instead it was other people reading the poems, which I loved, you know. Um, and I, there is there is obviously a kind of fear of exposure uh, of, of this material, but then I find that I don't know whether you found the same thing. Certainly, like the night, you know, I imagine the night before you're reading it out for the um, first time as a, as a kind of chapbook collection, it feels different, but when you've worked this material over so much as a, as a poem, as, as an edited object, it's kind of weirdly alienating. Um, yep. You read it about, as though it's about someone else. Um, it's, it is, it does have that dissociative effect that people describe. Um, and, and I think one of the things I'm trying to, at a very early stage of, of writing a new set of poems, now after the, organizing the chapbook at the end of last year, I'm very interested in, what the effects are of poetry when it's read by someone else or in someone else's voice or, or thinking about other ways in, that I can use form to expose the reader to that process by which a self becomes formalized, right? You take a really raw emotional material and then over a creative process, you work it up into this verbal artifact, right? That is about some other person. Um, and it's only when you're asked to read it aloud that you're like, oh, shit, that was always about me the whole time. <laughs> you know, I was the first. This happened to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I had the, had the exact same experience, actually. And I, I love the way you put it as this sense of alienation because, yeah, I, I went over and over and over and over the poems in blanks. And uh, that was why that experience came in a rush the night before because I had really just forgotten how much of myself were in each of the poems. And I guess that's a little bit like the process that you're describing there is you, yeah, you start with raw material and then kind of put it through this, this mill, this grinder, but whatever comes out the other side is still, it's still going to be, I think, revealing, even in what it leaves out sometimes. Right. And I think that is why, you know, I mean, I know for a lot of people, the idea of writing poetry by themselves is just anathema or, you know, they just they, makes them break out in sweats or whatever. Um, but I actually, um, I think the way in which I, I became a poet or that became the form of writing I was doing, I was trying to write fiction. I was trying to write uh, in drama as well, you know, scripts. And um, I was just finding that I was jotting things down in Evernote on my phone. And over time, those things coalesced into poems um, and it, it became very organic. And then I realized that the writing that was compelling, the reading that was compelling me the most was, was poetry. And that's just then became an obsession. But it, it, I just think it's really interesting that it emerged from life. And for a period of time, I was taking notes down because I was in therapy. And um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of the way that poetry came to me is this, this really important expressive form. And I love the idea as well, we can go back to we can go back to you deserve every happiness or blanks. And it's kind of this time capsule of <laughs> um, what we were experiencing. Definitely. Um, yeah. God, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore for the record. 
Right. right. <laughs> I think that the experience that I was describing happened years ago. And, and that's another way of alienation, right? That, that there's a temporal lag in even your ability to approach the material. Yeah, yeah. completely. I want to switch gears a little bit here and just touch on something else that you have brought up, which is your relationship to comics, to comedians. It sounds as if that might be a world that you're pretty interested in as well and not just in terms of, you know, having a a laugh on YouTube, but like comedy as an art form. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate to know um, some great uh, comedians, as friends uh, in Australia, so um, people like Michael Hing and Alex Lee, and and it's interesting to watch comedy alongside them, listen to comedy alongside them, and to think about the, the evolutions in that form. Um, and I think a lot of people have talked about the way that um, I think of, of all the popular art forms, um, it has had the most striking response to Me Too in terms of not just Hannah Gadsby, but then accountability for a whole set of, of, of comedians and I think the pressure that's put on the form uh, is really fascinating. And I actually kind of, I mean, that line in the poem about like, is Hannah Gadsby's thing a lecture? I just think it's kind of very interesting that people, uh, that that's a question that troubles people or, or that they have a very a contained sense of what comedy is. When to me, sort of the most important work in comedy is is thinking through, it's still really funny right that's its primary function but it's still thinking through questions about the 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 way you express yourself in a room or how performance works i think that um that uh some of my favorite but you know i I mentioned frank o'hara in the the poem but i think you know michael farrell who we're talking about is is just a hilarious poet it's really funny (laughs) you know i think that that's some of the moments i've connected most um uh, kate lilly is another australian poet that i just find hilarious her most recent collection, Tilt, um, is laugh out loud, I think. so, And, and I think that, that that's just such a, an obvious way of measuring effect or um, a communicative effect on the reader. Oh, so interesting that you mentioned Kate as well as Michael. In both those cases, for me, it took me going to a reading and hearing them say lines and hearing the audience's response for me to understand, like, this is a joke, Alice. You don't have to take it so seriously. These are jokes. Yeah, I think there was a, a huge... That, um, the great episode you have of your podcast on Kate Lilly's pastoral, right, <laughs> which is, you know, um, yeah. It's a very funny poem, but I think, I think you know, five years ago I might have read that and thought, um, thought of it very differently because I think I bought a great level of, uh, like self-seriousness and, you know, I really put poetry on a pedestal and didn't realise that you were allowed to laugh. And also I remember going to readings early on here in Melbourne and not getting the jokes as well because I hadn't really read widely enough to sort of understand what was going on a lot of the time. Um, I didn't have the reference points. But yeah, the, it's it's interesting what you say about the primary function, though, of, of comedy. So, yeah, thinking about something like Hannah Gadsby's Nanette or um, I also saw, oh, what was the next one that she did called? I've totally forgotten now. Um, dog, isn't it? I can't remember it either. <laughs> yeah, it's about, I'll look it up. It's about, it's about her dog and, yeah, I remember coming out of that and just feeling like a little bit uh, miffed because I didn't get to have the laughs that I wanted to have. 
even though it was a really interesting show and she was doing really she was doing a whole lot of stuff that was really new and interesting I felt like I was owed laughs that I did not receive and yeah I don't know maybe that's something of the difference that that audiences will approach a comedy set and they're like this was successful if I laughed at 80% of the jokes whereas at a poetry reading maybe you don't laugh but you you do something else you you appreciate the the language or the performance or the structure of the poems like yeah I don't know it feels like there's a there's a binary with humor like it's that much more it's a harsher world because it's like well you you actually do have to make people laugh otherwise you are not a comic that's so true and I think that you know obviously they feel like as a comic might feel that they bombed right if they went out and there weren't these kind of like audible moments of laughter whereas you're right in a poetry reading it's often more about like a smirk or a smile yeah one person laughing feels like, wow, that was a great comic moment. Yeah, yeah, I crushed, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so I think this is very different about modalities of, of um, response to humour um, in, in the different uh, fields. But, I I mean, I, I just think with um, the kind of key insight about the way humour operates that I think um, Hannah Gadsby made was just this idea that, you know, the, the, the structure of a joke is you raise tension and you relieve it. And I think that what was really interesting about that she's exploring is the idea of the denial of relief and whether we think she's effective at doing that or not, or whether we think that, I, I mean, that's a, a separate question, but I, yeah. I think that idea that she's saying, well, you know, that I was kind of re-traumatizing myself on stage each day and falsifying my past so that you left feeling relieved, right? There was always a, a comic ending to whatever traumatic memory. And she's like, well, what if I re- rewrote it to be the truth, right? And left you sitting with tension rather than me. Um, and whether we think that then she's, transgress the bounds of comedy I just think that that's a really fascinating thing to think about or what is it that what are the effects of of great darkly richly funny poems I think they're often doing something that Gadsby's sort of describing of you feel like it's like it's not it's almost like a paracomedic experience it's not quite comedy um you think you're being set up you know the reason that poem that I read first was called routines is it's about comedy routines right as well as daily routines. Um, but there's something, there's a way in which it doesn't function, like a comedy routine that's also important. Yeah, exactly. You you also leave us with the tension, but you have the, the freedom to do that. Right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Kate Lilly, you mentioned Michael Farrell. Who else are you reading and enjoying at the moment, poetry-wise? Yeah, I'm reading really eclectically at the moment in poetry. Um my PhD is in American 20th and 21st century poetry. So I'm reading a poet, Robin Schiff. It's an American poet who um, has published a book called Women of Property and her new book's coming out and, and the Yale Review just published a long poem from that, which is brilliant. Jericho Brown's The Tradition was a great book that I read last year. Um, I'm reading uh, The Penguin Book of Prose Poems. So most books, uh, which is, I think, Jeremy Noel Todd edited, um, most of the works in my um, chapbook are prose poems, so I'm trying to think a little bit more historically about that form. And the other, the, the poet that I kind of discovered this year in coursework is the 17th century poet George Herbert, who okay. I've just obsessed with. Um, so, and, and, and a book by an American poet um, called Aaron Coonan on one of his poems, on one of Herbert's poems called Love Three. Um, but yeah, and, and and then the other kind of contemporary American poet that is most influential to me is, is Wayne Kestenbaum. Um, but those are those are the kind of names that I'm reading. I'm just trying to think of the 
sort of um I'm actually just looking up around my bookshelf of the ones that are kind of yeah right yeah yeah it sounds really hugely eclectic and and super interesting those are all names that I've kind of I feel like I've heard once or maybe twice but I don't know anything about any of them so I'm looking forward to having a google around yeah, I'm. I'm. In, I'm very interested in that you were mentioning before about um, you go to a, uh, and I've I've had this experience so often. You go to a poetry reading and a reference is made or a name is dropped, and you're kind of like, oh, I don't really know who that is. And like sometimes I find that fine, and I just either the names just kind of wash over me, or um, I instead take it as kind of like an invitation to write that name down or store it. Or, but then other times. You know, a lot of the poetry that I love, Kirsten Baum is an example of this. Um, Frank O'Hara does it constantly, who's my favourite poet. It's just drop names. And sometimes it can kind of feel like this sort of endless accumulation of cultural capital <laughs> or this curation of lists. And I'm, it's something I'm really self-conscious about in my own poetry. Like, am I, when I'm dropping a name, do I want it to be legible or illegible to return to our previous frame? Or, you know, am I just, um, am I bringing... People, is it is this a sharing of knowledge? Um, and if it is a sharing of knowledge, is it is it doing it in a way that is locking certain people out? And if I am doing that, am I doing it consciously? Am I ironizing that, or am I critiquing that? Or you know, so those are kind of um, questions that sort of sustain both the way that I'm I'm reading these um, the reading these poems and, and writing my own poems. And I um, a kind of really important remark to me by made by Wayne Kestenbaum about read the first time he read the collected works of Frank O'Hara. He wrote down every single name of a composer or a, a choreographer or a French symbolist poet, et cetera, et cetera, and then went and, and, and researched them. And he thought in doing that, he wasn't just finding out like a set of names. It was this kind of like encyclopedia of, of, of queer culture, of how to value things as a queer athlete or someone that cared about culture from a queer vantage and I just sort of it's just a different way of thinking about what those names offer us in poems um because certainly sometimes it can just feel like this overwhelming hyperverbal desire to list that's un, I think unhelpful or unpoetic but other times it can be this invitation so it's it's just trying to think about what role do those names serve I don't know what you think about that but. yeah oh as as you're talking I'm just thinking about my own very neglected copy of Ahara's I think it's collected or or selected, but yeah, just felt completely shut out half the time and didn't think, you know, that it was totally available to me to go through and figure out who all these people are. That's such a, like, it's a much more generous way to approach it rather than being like just pouting and being like, well, I don't know who you're talking about. So I don't like this poem, but yeah. The other thing about O'Hara too is I think, I feel like he has this weird reputation of being like one of the most accessible poets. Right. And then you go pick up a collection and you're like, this is hard. Mm. This is difficult stuff. This requires like quite a bit of, yeah, research and thinking and rereading. It's not all having a Coke with you. Yeah, mm. I don't know. I've I've gone to the bookshop a few times and been like, I'm going to buy this person an O'Hara collection because they're new to poetry and this is where they should start. And I'm leafing through going, oh, no, this is going to freak them out. Like this is not going to work. I think that's a really interesting and, you know, I think that it says something about the way his reputation has shifted. You know, when he was writing, he was writing as a kind of anti-academy poet. He didn't really care what the academy thinks. And I think increasingly now that's 
in my mind, was keeping him his reputation central. <laughs> it's academics who are going through and looking at these list of names and intensively researching them. But that's not the kind of labor that a reader wants to put into a poem. So you have to find another way of relating to it. Either it is just a, I mean, some of the names in these, in O'Hara poem, they're ungoogleable. They're not they're just friends. Yeah, or they're just the first names of friends. Friendly, esoteric painters. or And then, you know, it kind of is a way of engaging with that. Wayne Kestenbaum wrote a recent series of trance notebooks, just his kind of, he goes into trance, writes these notebooks, and then fashions them into poems. So one of the things that he did was he he put invented names in there. So literally ungoogleable names. Um, it's just a kind of a different way of getting us to think about these uh, poems as sort of stores of cultural capital or as, or as literary rosters right or systems again we might think that that's that's more of a practical joke you're playing on the reader then or um you're still soliciting that same desire to know but then frustrating it yeah. you know i think he's bad or, or is it an invitation right and that's kind of i don't i don't yet have an answer on that question <laughs> after thinking about it for some time in, in in my own poetry yeah i think it just also depends on the type of reader you are if you're a pouty reader like myself who wants everything served up on a platter, then uh, I mean that's not entirely true. If the poem is is if I feel like it deserves the work and the attention from me, then I'll absolutely put it in. But I don't know. I guess I require a level of beauty before I'm gonna do that work. Right. It's my own laziness, but yeah. Oh, this has been so great. Uh, I'd love to finish off with a poem. Um, maybe another one of yours, if you have one that you'd like to read. Sure. Um, let me see. I might read one um, that's uh, slightly different. This one's called Constellation Points. Constellation Points. I remember Point, Julian, an insistent cowboy, green-eyed. He made me a white Indian. Point, his Cape Town English taught me vows can meet at two oceans, circulate. Point. Rock scrambling. A camp for Julian's church group. Atheists always abseil, but I let his hand guide me in the dark. Point. His mother's potpourri. A bungalow. She was a study in tolerance that afternoon. A painted gun clicked in my direction and not for the first time. Point. His departure for Perth. Jules, I said, with a preternatural sense of how to author a memory. The West is no longer just the mind's saloon. Point. Last week thinking. Who watched us play colonies and push frontiers? The described past is an unwelcome metaphor here in real life Santipodes. Point. Not remembering Julian. My ceiling constellation glowed in the dark and I slept for the first time in week, in, in a week, knowing that we shared certain stars. Point. Landing in Cape Town Airport, inbound from Tambo, driving straight to a restaurant on the foothills over Hout Bay, a petnat sunset, platitudes exchanged with the boyfriend. Sydney is Cape Town and isn't. I didn't remember Julian at all. Point. Reading Joe Brainard two weeks later at a cafe in Camps Bay. As a vegan, champagne is the only way I can taste butter, but here it is folded into scallops with garlic, just as his mother did as he watched from the kitchen table. Just as all love is remembered looking, a seeing when we can't, so real stars glow in the dark. Later, I'll see a man who is Julian without any resemblance. As we grind, I lose my phone and walk home alone, unable to capture the fading stars or any other concept of God. So good. Thank you so much. Thanks for spending the time to chat with me today.
Thank you so much, uh, Alice. It's just been so wonderful, so normalizing. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I can do nothing else, I can make things feel normal for a little while. Thank you. 